to a Hope 103.2 podcast. Welcome to Australia's Invisible History, the podcast where we make the invisible visible. I'm Katrina Rowe, a writer, broadcaster and podcaster based in the Riverina of New South Wales. Dr. Paul Rowe, the Outback historian, is a storyteller from the Back of Burke, and together we are retelling the tales of some of Australia's invisible heroes, pioneers and visionaries. These are the forgotten folks who made a huge contribution to Australia. Many of them spoke up on behalf of Australia's most marginalised and invisible people. Most were leaders in their field, but all of them were following the invisible footsteps of their own leader the carpenter and teacher from Nazareth. I hope you'll enjoy learning about some of the true characters who have shaped our Australian way of life. Today's story is set both in the sands of Manly Beach in Sydney and the sand hills of outback New South Wales. Stanley and Lucy Drummond travelled huge distances together from their base in Cobar, supporting families who had been devastated by loss and illness. Stanley was relaxing on the sand at Manly Beach, recuperating after surgery, when he had a vision to bring Outback kids to the beach for a seaside holiday. This simple idea grew into an innovative health service, providing accommodation for Outback children receiving medical care in the city. Before too long, they had created an Outback rail car clinic, the world's first aerial baby clinics, and even mobile dentists. Nothing stopped Stanley Drummond. People that knew him said he was unstoppable. When he got an idea, he just kept going. And I've heard stories where he would walk into the, you know, into the surgery of the top surgeons in Sydney and Macquarie Street with some of these kids and say, look, I've got no money. These kids have got no money. What are you going to do about it? That, that's where it all began. These doctors, I think, loved to serve these children because they saw their needs. You know, they were out of sight, out of mind, out in the bush, but suddenly he presented them to them right in front of them. He eyeballed them and said, here's the need. What are you going to do about it? Today, we are time travelling back to the 1920s when children in the outback had little access to education or health care. Stanley and Lucy Drummond ran the Far West Mission in Cobar, travelling around the outback to help those who were isolated and lonely. Together, they established the Far West Children's Scheme, which brought outback kids to Manly in Sydney for medical care. The service quickly expanded, and today it's known as Royal Far West, the only charity dedicated to improving the health and well-being of country kids. Dr. Paul Rowe, the Outback historian, has seen this work firsthand from his days in Burke. Hi, Paul. Good day, Katrina. It's a great story, isn't it? Mm, and you've chosen an, another Methodist, Paul. What's going on here? <laughs> uh, no, it wasn't deliberate. I, I just kept coming across the story of uh, Stanley Drummond and Lucy and uh, the great things they've done for the bush. People in the bush love the Far West Children's Scheme. So initially he worked as a clerk and then a carpenter, but he decided to become a Methodist minister sort of almost quite suddenly and he studied at Sydney Central Methodist Mission and was posted firstly to Bulladila. Hmm. Uh, but he had quite a bad accident there. What happened? Well, he came out of a horse and sulky, as I recollect, and uh, badly injured his leg. And uh, it was in a frame, I think an iron frame, for about 12 to 18 months. And he never really recovered from it, uh, so he always had a limp and 
I reckon that was one of the reasons he had such a compassion for children with uh, their medical needs. I imagine it would have been very painful and well, yeah. it it was a long, slow recovery. So he just probably really knew how important it was to have good medical care. Absolutely. So after that accident, um, when he was 27, he married Lucy Doust in Barrel. She was 35 at the time, which would have been considered quite old, really. Mm, mm. What do we know about her? You know, was she on board with his vision for his ministry? Sounds to me like she'd really been uh, involved in training in ministry for a while with the Methodists, and that's how they met at the college. She already had a pretty well-developed heart for helping people, for ministering to people, and developed her Christian faith. So I think they were natural partners when they met. I think that's what drew them together. And they shared many years of ministry in places like Ralston. They were in Canoundra for a while. They were in Yass. Before they went to Cobar in 1924, what would Cobar have been like at that time, Paul? Yeah, well, I read the mayor telling him when he arrived, you've hit Cobar at a time when it's at the bottom. Like it was, it, I think it was about a quarter of its population. Uh, the mines had sort of suffered. So it was at a very all-time low and uh, the bush was struggling as well. So he reached a place when it was very, very difficult and he said, well, he saw it as an opportunity to turn things around. He was always an optimist and he said, well, every challenge like this I can face and I, I think we can overcome this. So that was his spirit. And Lucy was very much part of this ministry at this time, wasn't she? Absolutely, yes. They set up in the little uh, cottage there that was the manse in, in Cobar. In fact, uh, when I was working with Cornerstone, we one of our first teams lived in that little manse. It was sort of a nice little connection there. So out of there, they, they started travelling in their Vauxhall. Uh, and, of course, they didn't have children, I think, partly because Lucy was older, and that may have been another reason for them being compassionate for, for kids. And so they started to reach out <laughs> without a lot of bush experience. They were setting out in a pretty basic car, like a, uh, one of those old jalopies, uh, we would consider it, without four-wheel drive or anything like that, no radio connection or anything, and driving very, very long and lonely distances out into places like Tipperborough and Yankanya and uh, along the the Darling River and up to Burke and so on. So they, they were very adventurous and pretty brave, really. What sort of challenges would they have faced travelling in that sort of country, Paul? Like would it have been hard to access water and places to sleep and all that sort of thing? Well, absolutely. I mean, I worked in tourism in the West in the 90s, in the 1990s, and, we, you know, we, we had people get in trouble out there with all the modern cars and things. They were travelling out there with very little resource really and uh, no real understanding of the bush or you know mind map of where things were I mean people would direct them say well you just keep driving that way for 10 hours you know and you'll come to <laughs> wherever it is and oftentimes there wasn't even a road there they just kept driving and thinking well he said go this way and they found themselves bogged in sand hills they found themselves short of water breakdowns in the car things like that that they weren't familiar with or trained for so it was dangerous really and uh, they were they weren't really fully prepared for it, but as Drummond said, well, you live and learn. You learn on the jobs. <laughs> That's how they did it. And would the people in these remote places, I mean, many of the women just didn't have company, would they have been quite happy and excited to have oh, received them? 
Absolutely, and particularly seeing another woman because they may go six months or a year without seeing another woman and to have a woman to talk to is gold. And she brought a sensitivity. There's a beautiful story about them dropping in a family and the family met them with great hospitality. They sat down to a meal and they were chatting to the daughters and the father and Stanley Drummond said to the father, oh, and, and I thought you'd have some sons out here. And the father dropped his knife and fork, broke into tears and ran from the room because he'd had two sons who died in recent times partly because they just couldn't get to medical care. Lucy sort of moved in and sort of brought the mother out and, and discovered this story. But that really burned itself into their imagination. They said it was just too late. Like that that phrase, it was too late, really stuck with them. And that things like that triggered their real heart for reaching out to the lonely, lonely people of the bush in such isolation. This is before the Flying Doctor Service or Alfred uh, Traeger's radios. So that's what really set them in motion. So how did Drummond come up with the idea for the Far West Children's Scheme? Well, oddly enough, it happened when he was sick himself. He'd had a gallbladder operation, I think, and he was sitting on Manly Beach. He was a surfer. He loved the surf. He was sitting on Manly Beach, and he he was thinking about the kids way out there in the outback in lonely places. He'd come across kids who had their eyes bandaged for months and uh, with Sandy Blight, you know, and they and they sat in a room without any help at all, or kids with twisted limbs or bad teeth or had never had a holiday, any any care because the families just couldn't afford it. It was too far away from anywhere. He could visualise them as he sat there on the beach. He said, here's me having this lovely holiday. Those kids need a holiday like this. Why don't I do that for them? And he quickly shared this with Lucy, and she agreed with him. They sat on the beach there and said, let's do this. Let's let's turn this dream into a reality. And she said to him, whatever you decide to do, I'm with you. I'm, back, I'm going to back you. And they were a team. They were always a team. And he once said, look, don't just praise me up. Lucy was a part of this from the start. Mm. And so they brought 58 kids to that first Far West Seaside camp in 1924. I think the kids were sick all the way to Sydney, weren't they? They were sort of vomiting in the train. and all that. The kids had never been on a train before, so any time they saw something interesting, they'd cheer, you know, and he said they were cheering all the way to Sydney just whenever they saw something novel. And there's some beautiful photos of them in their little swimsuits all yeah. matching with FW for Far West on, yeah. on the back. Yeah. So they didn't lose the kids in the in the crowds of the city, which is really sweet. But it was only, I think, in the second year they ran the camp that a local doctor, uh, Dr. George Moncrief Barron, mm. noticed that all these kids had medical issues mm. and offered to treat them free of charge. And so it very quickly expanded and adapted from being a seaside holiday to being a service to bring bush kids to the city for medical care. So how did this service sort of grow and change over time? Well, I think nothing stopped Stanley Drummond. People that knew him said he was unstoppable. When he got an idea, he just kept going. And I've heard stories where he would walk into the, you know, into the surgery of the top surgeons in Sydney and Macquarie Street with some of these kids and say, look, I've got no money. These kids have got no money. What are you going to do about it? That, that's where it all began. These doctors, I think, loved to serve these children because they saw their needs. You know, they were out of sight, out of mind, out in the bush, but suddenly he presented them to them right in front of them. He eyeballed them and said, here's the need. What are you going to do about it? And I think he did the same with business people uh, and then with ordinary people. He got a lot of ordinary people to come and help him run camps for the kids, cook, you know, you name it, he had them on side. The taxi driver in in Cobar was his mate and he'd drive him long distances out into the bush. He'd do anything for Stanley Drummond because he saw how he loved the kids, even though he was a Catholic and and you know, Drummond was a, 
a Methodist, but Drummond's little slogan was "Need knows no creed," and so he was he opened his heart and his doors mm. to anybody. And this children's scheme, although it started with bringing bush kids to the city, it very quickly grew into taking these services to the bush. They had rail clinic cars, mobile baby health clinics that travelled on the train, and they even used planes, right? Exactly, yep. Um, I met Nancy Bird, the famous uh, aviatrix that we're naming the the airport for in Sydney, the new airport, and uh, she told me, she met Stanley Drummond in a hotel down here in Dubbo, and uh, she was only nineteen, and the, probably the first woman flyer anybody'd seen out here. I think she called her first book "My God, It's a Woman." That's what people said when she climbed out of the the, the cockpit. But she said Stanley Drummond talked to her. Quick, Nancy, I want you to come out and fly my nurses for me out of Burke, out to outlying settlements like Wanaring and Yandabula, so they can serve the women of the bush. It's too long and arduous for them to drive everywhere. And so she said, Mr. Drummond, and then she added later, Mr. Flynn, John Flynn, were the first two men to really believe in me, you know, because <laughs> men were fairly sceptical about women pilots. But these guys had the vision and they backed that girl. And uh, so she flew into Burke as a 19-year-old girl in this little leopard moth aircraft. She wrote in a book, she just had such admiration for the women of the bush. I mean, I had a friend in Burke who told me his grandmother lost nine out of 13 children out at Wanaring. Well, you can imagine the heartbreak. I mean, how how paralysing would that be? And to think that this little plane would arrive with a nurse and give care to the, the women and the children of the bush, it was a beautiful gift. Apparently it was the world's first aerial baby clinic when it took off in 1932. Mm, that's right. Yep, I think they're a bit ahead of Flynn, yeah. Yep. Yeah, and, uh, and then Charles Kingsford Smith also got involved apparently and made a big donation so that they could build. Yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? When people start to see a vision, and that was Stanley Drummond's great capacity, like Flynn, he, he could see a vision and he, he drove hard at it and people were all around the bush. I mean, there's a lovely story about a, a black, he was a bit of an alcoholic, lived way out the back corner. He's, you know, he, he pressed some money on uh, Stanley Drummond as he left. He said, this is for to help prodigals like me. He said, you know, that that's Stanley Drummond. He was the real thing. He was the real Christian and his wife, wow, she was the real Christian. You know, we need lots of people like those out here in the outback. So they left an indelible mark on people with their individual care. He said he always stopped to talk to me. You know, he, he didn't treat me like the, the local drunk. He sat down and he talked with me man to man and it, that's what he loved about him. Mm. So in 1935, they finally opened their Drummond Far West home in Manly. Mm. What impact has that had over the years, Paul? Well, I stood there a few years back with the CEO of uh, Far West Children's Scheme and just saying, I'm just wondering how we can sort of, you know, get this story out there. And I, I was standing with her looking at it across the road at Manly Beach. I said, well, I live in Burke and I'm a tourist officer. We have a few people come through Burke. Every year you've got a million people come and sit on the beach opposite you. Why don't you open the front end of this and tell this story? Because they had an archive full of these fantastic photographs of kids before and after, the kids with crippled limbs who got them straightened, kids with teeth that were really bad that had been transformed. 
um, kids who'd never had a holiday and their faces bright with the fun of it all. I mean, they were great before and after photographs. It's a fantastic story. I said, you've just got to put it out there to people, the real stories. So, you know, I interviewed a mail truck driver who drove from Burke to Hungerford, 240 kilometres. He said, you know, I'd pick up a couple of kids there in Hungerford. This is in the 1930s. He said, I'd tie them in the front of the truck with a bit of rope because they didn't have a door and we'd drive through the night, you know. We'd drive eight or nine hours through the night and we'd arrive at Burke at four in the morning and there'd be Mr. and Mrs. Drummond waiting on the platform. Jeez, they were wonderful people, mate. They were like Jesus Christ out here. Well, what a great story that is, you know. Um, that's not going to make national headlines, but, gee, that that's nation building. These are people who who saw a vision, drove hard at it, gave their hearts to it, sweated and toiled. I mean, she was she pushed cars through bogs and out of sand hills and went without um, and lived very simply and rough to give opportunity to these children. And the people of the bush haven't forgotten it. The Far West Children's Group, I don't know how many kids they would have helped by now, tens of thousands, I expect, who will tell you story after story after story of what the Far West Children's Scheme has given to the people of the bush. So why wouldn't you want to tell the story of Stanley and Lucy Drummond? He was always adamant that it was a, it was a team effort, that the two of them worked together. Mm. Sadly, though, um, you know, Drummond, he did have a lot of health issues and only a year after the home finally opened, he had a heart attack. Yep. And Lucy died first in 1942. He died only a year later in 1943. Yep. Did they push themselves too hard to make this happen? Do you think they sort of paid a personal cost, given they both died so young? Well, that's probably a question you should ask of lots and lots of pioneers. Did they push themselves too hard? Well, probably. But if they hadn't, it wouldn't have happened. And they didn't sort of stint. They didn't sort of complain. They didn't sort of see themselves as heroes. They just did it because it had to be done. And they had a great heart for the children and for families. And so they gave themselves unstintingly and they inspired many, many other people to do the same. So I can't really answer that question. They'd have to answer that one personally. But looking from the outside, you say, yeah, well, that was they, they could have lived a lot longer. But would they have lived as fruitfully? That's a good question to ask. Well, why do you think they deserve to be remembered? Well, I think all the things we've mentioned, Katrina, I think humble people, minimal resources, going out into the vast outback, seeking, I think, like the Bible says, Jesus was like looking for lost sheep, the shepherd out there. They went looking for the, the lonely and the lost, and they loved them, you know, and they left a sort of legacy of love across the, the outback out here, and you can't put a dollar value on that. And I think that's why people here remember them well, and they should be remembered well. I think perhaps new generations don't know this story, and they should. And when you go to Manly Beach and you see that Royal Far West Children's Scheme there, think of this couple out there in an old jalopy pushing themselves through the scrub and bush looking for the individual child and bringing them back into that. Sometimes they drive all the way from Sydney, way into the outback, pick up a kid, bring him in. Uh, they did all that sort of thing without complaint, you know, with big hearts. And that big heartedness, I think, is what I love about them and I think Australians should celebrate. One of the beautiful things I read about Lucy was that when they were in these really difficult situations, you know, where they just were stranded or really struggling, she always had a positive and cheerful disposition. Yep. She didn't 
she didn't complain. Absolutely. She didn't get stressed. She just took it all in her stride. Yeah, I think mm. that's it. And she, I think she saw the limitations of her husband and his, his frailties and got it alongside him. That's the Alpaca story in Dr. Paul Rowe. We've been talking about Stanley and Lucy Drummond, the founders of what is now Royal Far West. Paul's new book is called Tell Me Another, a storyteller's search for Australia's lost faith. You can find Paul Rowe online at theoutbackhistorian.com.au and you can find me at katrinarowe.com. Thanks for listening to Episode 24 of Australia's Invisible History, the podcast where we make the invisible visible. I hope you've enjoyed learning about Stanley and Lucy Drummond. What a pair. You can find more links and info in our notes section. In our next episode, we'll meet one of Australia's most successful businesswomen, Mary Riby. She was sent to Australia as a convict in 1792 for stealing a horse when she was just 13 years old. Uh, when she went away to work as a servant in the household, that's when apparently she got tired of it or for some reason she stole a horse and took off and tried to sell it. And that in 18th century was, was a serious crime and could could have meant she could be hung. But the other odd thing was she was disguised as a boy and they didn't really discover it until after the uh, case had been dealt with. She went on to become a multimillionaire and one of the most influential women in the colony. You'll hear her amazing story in episode 25 of Australia's Invisible History. If you've enjoyed our yarns, let your friends know about us. Or if you're a teacher, share them with your students and colleagues. You can sign up for the latest news at hope1032.com.au or follow Dr. Paul Rowe at theoutbackhistorian.com.au. I'm Katrina Rowe. Thanks for listening. Hey, if you've enjoyed this episode of Australia's Invisible History, please subscribe and give us a review. That way other people can find us and we can keep telling more stories. Hope 103.2. Thanks for listening.